Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. It's the second in a special two-part series called Do We Really Make Our Own Choices? What Judaism teaches us about our ability to react to things in the right way. And Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In this series, Rabbi Wilds reflects on the terrible tragedy of the death of George Floyd and the reaction which has ensued across the United States. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Um, okay, so I want to pick up where we left off. I'm going to do a little review because it's Thursday and we haven't had the chance to have this discussion since Monday. Um, but I want to thank um, um, Allison um, from the MGE staff, stellar teacher of Oz, who taught a phenomenal class yesterday. Thank you, Allison, for that wonderful class. And the day before, I don't know how many of you got on, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to not have lunch and learn and instead have you be given the opportunity to uh, tune into Rabbi Lamb's memorial service, which I thought was just spectacular and unbelievable um, and powerful. I wrote a blog that will be uh, being published right now in the Times of Israel, and I'll be posting that very, very soon for you to read about uh, some of my personal experiences and recollections of Rabbi Lamb, who was uh, an exceptional, exceptional person and rabbinic thinker and leader of our generation. I'd like to continue to uh, teach in Rabbi Lamb's memory. If there was anyone that was, knew how to react reasonably to difficult situations, it was Rabbi Lamb. And I wanna go back to what I said on Monday, uh, MGE, we also released a statement, and I wanna thank Rabbi Ezra Cohn and Daniel Wallach, my student and friend from the fellowships program, who uh, helped me draft that uh, statement, because it's not easy. Uh, first and foremost, we continue to decry and to protest um, the absolute despicable um, uh, killing of, of, uh, of George Floyd. Um, and it was just, it's, it's really such a difficult thing that the world is continuing to process. Um, and we want to also uh, deplore the extreme groups that are taking advantage of this opportunity to really fix a terrible ill in our society of bigotry and racism um, by, by just hashing out and lashing out, um, which serves no productive end whatsoever. Uh, there is a way to react even to something as terrible as um, the killing of, of, of a man who certainly did not deserve to die uh, at all, and certainly not in the way that he did. Uh, and the way to react, obviously, is not to uh, create more violence and produce more hate, but it is to put, to sit down and do what we can to press our elected officials to make the necessary changes um, to rid this country once and for all of the terrible racism and bigotry that still is rearing its ugly head. And I said this on Monday, and I'll mention it again, how quickly we in the Jewish community forget uh, that, that anti-Semitism was on the rise before Corona. And uh, that was what we were getting up in arms. Remember the rally when we walked over um, the Brooklyn Bridge? Um, it was not so long ago, just a couple, just a couple of months ago. And we have to remember that uh, anti-Semitism and all forms of, of, of racism and bigotry are still out there and they have to be confronted. But they have to be confronted in the right way. 
uh, and not by creating worse um, situation by promoting more violence and more hatred. Uh, we just cannot allow that to happen. We cannot allow these very positive movements and the majority of the people are protesting peacefully and it's important to remember that. It's the fringe groups that always give good legitimate movements a bad name and that's the last thing that, uh, that a movement protesting bigotry um, should be given, which is a bad name. Um, so we continue to urge peace, continue to encourage people to protest peacefully. And uh, I'd like to say memory, I'd like to share this learning with you in the memory of a man, of a great rabbi who stood for diplomacy, love and peace and who fought for many, many important causes in his life, blessed memory, who I had the real zechutz and the real honor of knowing quite well. And you'll hear... Um, okay, so I want to go back. The reason I chose this topic, um, Benjamin um, posted the, uh, the source sheet, uh, it's the same source sheet as Monday. I want to do a little review. But the question that we were raising is, do we really make our own choices? Do we say that something terrible happens in life and I have no choice but to react in this kind of way? And I mentioned that the Holocaust, that, that many of the Nazis were trying sort of a social experiment. L'chaim, by the way. I don't have lunch here, but I have some really great seltzer. Um, and the, uh, unfortunately, the Nazis were trying to demonstrate by putting Jewish people in concentration camps and subjecting them to untold horrible circumstances that like any animal you can condition a human being you can like a Pavlovian dog condition a person if you deprive them um, of, of their basic necessities that a human being ultimately is just an animal that can be predetermined whether it's through genetics or through its circumstances and what the Jewish people Viktor Frankl writes this in his book we're able to demonstrate every time that a Jew performed an act of chesed, an act of kindness in the camps, and shared his rations with someone less fortunate, they defied the Nazis. They disproved what they were trying to prove through this despicable social experiment that you can, you can control people, and we can know what people will do. And therefore, if someone is attacked, they will just do something worse in response. That does not have to be. And uh, I thought that was an appropriate... Um, topic for what's happening uh, in our society right now. Um, so we discussed um, the great Nachmanides who asked a couple of really important questions. Nachmanides uh, believed in the concept of what's called Maseavot Siman Labanim, that what happened to our um, main line for the children. And, uh, and, it, it, and I mentioned also that you know, things seem to repeat themselves, even in our own society. Uh, Jill, I just want to thank Jill for everything she does for the Jewish people in MGE. If you'd like to sit, there's a lot of new Torah here. I, I, I am going to sit, and I'm going to come out. Okay. So one, of the, so one of the things that we talked about is that, um, that people who vow never to get divorced or put themselves or their own children through the pain that they experience statistically still go through more divorce than people who don't. People who... Um, 80% of teens with gambling problems and at least one parent who gambled. Children of alcoholics are four more times likely to become alcoholics themselves. And it seems as though, you know, you put in a certain circumstance, you have no way out of it. So the Ramban 
this great rabbi from Spain, Nachmanides, with a question about the book of Genesis, we said. He says, why does Genesis contain so many details concerning the life of Abraham and Sarah? And why do we have to know about every little thing that happened in their lives? And the answer he gave is that because the things that happened to them are going to repeat in future generations. And we need to learn from the way they handled those situations not to repeat the same mistakes. And he continues to give example after example of how things that the patriarchs and the matriarchs did seem to be controlling, if you will, over our lives generations later. And remember we said that just like Abraham um, sinned by going down to Egypt and he failed to trust in God to save him from the famine that was raging Israel. And instead he places his wife in peril and therefore the entire exile in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh was decreed for the Jewish people. And how is that fair? And we also said that um, there was a, a, a story, uh, there's some sprinklers going on in the back, just ignore that, that there was a story about the four kings and the five kings, a big uh, fight and uh, war that took place that Abraham was involved in, and there's an entire chapter in the book of Genesis devoted to that war and connected to Abraham because um, in his Lot, his nephew was captured in that war, and Abraham leads his own army to save Lot and his family. Again, why do we need all the detail? So the Ramban says it's to tell us that there's going to be another four kings later on in the future of the Jewish people. Who are those four kings? Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And just like Abraham prevailed against the five kings, he was part of the four kings, he was fighting with the four kings, we too will prevail when those four empires try to subjugate us. Another example that we talked about was Sarah, when the Torah writes that Sarah viewed Hagar's disrespectfulness against her as an affront out of the house. And how do we understand Nachmanides? Nachmanides says because she mistreated Hagar, Yishmael was born. And Yishmael um, would give birth to descendants who would ultimately become Muslims, he says, who would oppress the Jewish people. Again, where's the free will? Because Abraham didn't have faith that God would feed him in Israel, and he puts Sarah's life in peril, that we are going to be subject to something in the future. The Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt because Abraham prevails in the war between the four or five kings, so too we will prevail against the Babylonians. Because Sarah acts harshly with Hagar, we, her descendants, are subject to Muslim persecution. And I mentioned before that if you have a problem with any of these issues, you're in good company. Because none other than the late and great Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote about this as well. And he was troubled by this. And that's where we left off. We left off with trying to understand how could certain things happen to our ancestors and then, and then those same things are thrust upon us. It seems as though because of the things that they did, right? And it seems like the same thing. Is it fair that my parents were divorced and therefore now there's more of a chance I'm going to get divorced? And, and because my, I don't know, my dad has a gambling problem, therefore I'm going to have a gambling problem as well. So you see the problem, you see the question. So if you take a look on page, um, I want to read with you on page um, three.
This is where we left off. Page three of your source, it's source number five. So Rabbi Salvechik gives an answer. And I'm gonna just read to you the part which answers this question, where it says answer. On the right-hand column, on page three of the handout that Binyamin posted. Thank you all for being here. Can you guys hear me okay? Um, I feel like I'm a little more disconnected than normal, than normally because I'm outside in the sun and it's harder for me to see my screen because I've got a glare. All right, I didn't want to be indoors. It's just so nice here. Okay, so um, let's read page three together. In my opinion, says Rav Salvechik, the answer to this question is simple. Certainly the experiences of the patriarchs foreshadow of posterity. Whatever happened to our forefathers was bound to transpire in the life of the nation. Premonitory and anticipatory signs. Fancy language. However, the events narrated by the Bible serve as signs or symbols of future events. Any sign or symbol, though, is subject to interpretation. For the semantics of signs and of symbolic language is multiple. Signs can be interpreted in many ways. This, of course, is a message in every... There is, of course, a message in every biblical scene and event, and this message is related to future scenes and events. Yet the freedom of the people of the Bible has not been curtailed, because a message, like a sign, is subject to interpretation. And the latter is a many-faceted, heterogeneous affair. This is really important. We Jews, he continues to say, look at page 3, the right-hand column, last paragraph, we Jews have been taught that the eternal truth of the Torah reveals itself to man by way of many interpretations, and of course all of them are true. Halachic logic, unlike classical logic, is an n-valued logic. The truth we believe can be projected against many backgrounds. And if I'm like Acts of the Patriarchs, this is where it's underlined on the bottom, on the right-hand column. Yet in every generation, how we interpret the event is up to the individual or to the people as a whole. The Jew is free to choose from the many alternative interpretations of the event. So what is Rav Salvechik explaining? He's saying, yes, everything. Jill, are you able to hear me? Okay. So yes, everything that happened to the Avos and Imbohos, everything that happened to our patriarchs and our matriarchs, will happen to us again. Mase avot siman lebanim, the, what happened or the, the, the experiences of our patriarchs and our matriarchs is a siman, it's a sign for the future. Their life experiences serve as signs for the future. However, and I'm using Rav Salvechik's explanation now of the Ramban of Nachmanides, how to interpret those signs, how to interpret those life events is really up to us. And therefore, when those events present themselves to us in our generation, we'll choose how to deal with them. Since we're not bound by any single interpretation of these events in the Torah, we don't have to be passive objects when those events happen to us. And we don't have to say, well, you know, my father was, uh, you know, an alcoholic, or my father had a gambling problem, so there's not much else I can do. It's in my genes. And by the way, the great uh, philosopher, um, he was a genetic predeterminist. His name was a Spinoza. Um, community to be a bit of a heretic because he believed that we really didn't have free will. There is no free will. We're just a bunch of atoms and chromosomes put together. And he really much believed, you know, and I'm not saying he was an unethical person like the Nazis were, so please don't, you know, but he believed what the Nazis were trying to prove, that, that everything is predetermined. And the way that you and I are going to decide 
can be predicted based on the things that happen to us and our genetic predeterminism. Other people believe that we have no free will for other reasons. But the Torah, this is, that's very, very much against classical Judaism. Even though we believe that there are things that happen reoccurring, so even though we know there's a higher likelihood that I'm going to get divorced if my parents were divorced, or if I marry someone and my parents were divorced and the person I married was the, the son or the of divorce goes up statistically. But does that mean I have to get divorced? Does that mean I have no control? Does that mean I can't learn? I mean that at all. We do not have to be passive objects when those are us. We can act freely in terms of them. And Rabbi Schachter, my teacher, said that this is in line with Rabbi Soloveitchik's overall philosophical approach of transforming passive to active in terms of how we deal with things in life. And I cannot tell you a more fundamental Jewish teaching. And this approach can be found in three different parts of Rav Salvatric's classic works. The Lonely Man of Faith, which I always quote from, Halachic Man, which you need to read. I don't quote from it enough, but it's an extraordinary work. And uh, Fate and Destiny, which I've also quoted from a lot, uh, which is the Rav's treatise on religious Zionism and why bad things happen to good people. Take a look at source number six on your handout. Source number six on your handout. Where is source number six? That's source number five, page three. Page four, here it is, source number six. Okay, you guys with me? We're gonna read first from Lonely Man of Faith. Joe, you joining? You, you, you need to see this inside, it's incredible. And I have another copy for you. Okay, you guys with me here? You all with me? Okay, excellent, we have a beautiful crowd here. Let us portray these two men in typological categories. Man's likeness to God expresses itself in man's striving and ability to become a creator. He has a great drive for creative activity, the intelligence, the human mind capable of confronting the outside world inquiring into complex workings. And, and, and Adam one, human dignity, says Rav Soloveitchik, is achieved by asserting control over the environment. It's a basic drive, says Rav Soloveitchik in this famous lonely man of faith. That's the Adam one within us, not to be controlled by external events, but to exert control over the environment. Scientists all over the world are at, hard at work of trying to come up with a vaccine for corona, right? The fact that we are falling prey to a disease that we have very little control over, of course is a great indication that there's a God out there and that we don't control things, but it really expresses a certain helplessness, a certain lack of control. We are the objects of what's happening. And there's a part of us that's so frustrated because there's a part of us that God created to be in control, and that is the Adam one, and not simply allow things to happen to us. Number two, in Halachic Man, Rav Soloveitchik wrote this very, very powerfully. Joe, if you'd like this, it's, it's, uh, we're in the top of page five of your handout. I actually have the original. You want to see it? I'm going to read from the top. Take a look what it says on Halachic Man. It's on top of page five of your handout. Halachic Man received the Torah from Sinai not as a simple recipient but as a creator of worlds, as a partner with the Almighty in the act of creation. The power of creative interpretation, which is called Chiddush, is the very foundation of the received tradition. When I was in Shir, and 
when I studied in Yeshiva University, everybody was always looking, what's the Chiddush? What's your insight? You know, and, and, your, and, and Judaism encourages independent thought. I'll just tell you a quick story because I'm saying this year in memory of Rabbi Lamb, Zechon Alvrach, of blessed memory. But Rabbi Lamb once went to Rav Soloveitchik and there was a big issue in Manhattan as to whether or not you can rely on the natural contours of the island to serve as an Erev around Manhattan. And Erev, for those of you not familiar, allows you to carry one of the things we don't do on Shabbat is to carry. And it was very controversial. And, Rav, and, and Rabbi Lamb went to the Rav and said, what's your opinion on the Erev of Manhattan? And Rav Salvechik said, you know, I haven't really studied the issue well enough, but I gave you smicha for a reason. I ordained you and made you into a rabbi for a reason. Figure it out yourself. Rabbi Lamb went and figured out and decided that he was in favor of it and he thought it was acceptable. And it was so interesting because later on, later on, Rav Salvechik came out against the Erev when he looked into it himself. And Rabbi Lamb then went back to his teacher and said, do you want me to recount what I said? Do you want me to go back on the opinion that I just rendered? And Rav Salvechik said, no. I gave you smicha for a reason. You have the tools to analyze the situation yourself, figure out yourself. So a lachic man, the power of creative interpretation is the very foundation of the received tradition. When Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy One, blessed is he, sitting there tying crowns to the letters in order that future generations should by virtue of their powers of creative interpretation discover heaps upon heaps of law contained in every tittle. All new creative insights that a bright student will glean are an integral part of the oral law. Quote, and this is a quote from Halachic Man, take a look on source number seven where it's in quotes, only man is capable of creative interpretation, chiddush, something which is beyond the power of angels. For since the Holy One, blessed is he, created them in a state of perfection, they need not and therefore cannot develop and progress. You know how me and you are above the angels? Because the angels are just perfect the way they are. They can't get any better. They can't build a case with man. For he progresses and his intellect gains ever increasing strength. Thus the sages have added fences and guards around the law which would not be possible had the Torah been given to angels. For in that case it would, be remain, it would remain forever unchanged without addition or diminution. The essence of the Torah is intellectual creativity. Rabbi Chaim Velazhin, one of the great rabbinic scholars from whom Rav Salvechik descends, devoted the first chapter of his work, Nefesh Achaim, to an explanation of the, of the first verse in the, in the verse in the Torah, and God created man in his own his expression, is his explanation, that it is man who gives life and constructs the worlds that are above him. The whole of transcendental existence is subjugated to him and under his sway. He creates supernal exalted worlds and destroys them. We are not objects. I know you're sitting here listening to a Facebook Live. I understand that, but you want to know something? The most important thing in, in a class is asking a question. It is grappling with the issue yourself. It's not being a passive listener and just saying, okay, whatever the rabbi said. No, you have to create your own chidush. You are not an object. You are a subject. Follow me also on source number eight, um, which is another work from Salvechik in his book called Fate and Destiny. Man is born like an object. He dies like an object, but possesses the ability to live like a subject, like a creator, an innovator, 
who can express his own individual seal upon his life and can excrete himself from a mechanical type of existence and enter into a creative, active mode of being. Man's task in the world, according to Judaism, by the way, this was my email signature for years, is to transform fate into destiny, a passive existence into an active existence, an existence of compulsion, perplexity, and muteness. You know what it means to be mute? That means just stuff happens to you. Into an existence replete with a powerful will, with resourcefulness, daring, and imagination, God's blessing to the work of his hands sums up their entire purpose in life to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, subdue the environment and subject it to your control. If you do not rule over it, it will subjugate you. Destiny bestows upon man a new rank in God's world. It presents him with a royal crown and man becomes transformed into a partner with the Almighty in the act of creation. And so yes, we're heavily influenced by things that happen to us in our life, by the people who raised us, by the society in which we live, but ultimately we determine the kind of person we become by the decisions we make, but only if we transform our lives from one of fate into one of destiny, only if we take matters into our own hands and we be proactive. And that's why you can never say, I was forced to do something. Maybe if somebody actually put a gun to your head and said you're forced. But even then, there's a decision. And therefore, no one should ever be forced in a situation at work, in a relationship. We always, whenever you say the words, I had no choice, ask yourself, do you really believe that you had no choice? Fate will have it, of course, that certain things will occur no matter what we do in life. And yes, what Avram did in his life had a major impact on his son Yitzchak's life. And Yitzchak's issues and problems had an impact on his son Yaakov's life. And everything they and the matriarchs did in their lifetime made an imprint on Jewish history. But it did not control the decisions that, they, that we, their descendants, are still able to make when those same circumstances happen to us in our lives. There's a reality that things from our past will shape and affect us. But because my parents are divorced, that will for sure increase the likelihood that I will too. But because we can be proactive in that situation, to, not, to make our relationship stronger for the next generation, it's not predetermined. We still get to choose. Now, we don't get to choose whether someone, God forbid, gets sick. We don't get to choose whether a parent or someone close to me, you know, is God forbid abusive, right? You can't pick your parents, my reality. That's the deck of cards that I've been dealt with. But one thing I still get to choose, and this makes all the difference in the world. I still get to choose how to deal with it. Talmud tells us, if you look at the next source, on the top of page six, Oto Malach HaMamun Al-Arayon is the name of an angel. I've taught this passage in the Talmud many times. Very, very powerful. There was a certain angel that was in charge of conception, of birth, when a woman gets pregnant. And this angel takes a drop and places it, we're on the top of page 6, in the presence of the Holy One, blessed be He, saying, Sovereign of the universe, what shall be the fate of this drop? This drop, by the way, the rabbis teach us, is a drop of sperm. 
And even before this, and fertilizes the egg and develops into a person, the angel governing pregnancy takes this drop before God and says to God, what shall be the fate of this drop? Shall it produce a strong man or a weak man, a wise man or a fool, a rich person? Now it seems from this Talmud, from this passage in the Talmud, that life has been preordained even before the egg has been fertilized by the sperm. The sperm is already predetermined whether it's going to be strong or weak, whether it's going to be smart or not as smart, it's going to be rich or poor. However, whether or not this drop will be a tzaddik, a righteous person, or a poor per or a, a Russia, a wicked person, the angel never asks God that question. And the reason the angel never asks that God question, that, that, that question to God, is because that's the part that you and I get to choose. And the Talmud ends with this lesson, Hakol Shemayim, everything is in God's hands, Chutz Mirat Shemayim, except for the fear of God. Which means that a lot of things have been, the, the deck of cards has been dealt. Like, I can't really determine the way I look. That's basically been given to me. I may not even be able to 100% determine how much money I make because to some degree that's been predetermined too. Based on my socioeconomic class, you can break out of it and there are exceptions to every rule. People who came to this country without a penny in their pocket and yet they made millions and millions of dollars in their life. Of course that can happen. And we can alter how strong we are. We can alter what we look like a little, but not so fundamentally. But that's not what Judaism is concerned about. What Judaism is concerned about is not with the deck of cards you've been dealt with, not with the circumstances, not how much money you have or how, what you look like, but what you do with the deck of cards, how you handle all the circumstances of your life. I once heard the late and great Esther Youngerice once say that it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, you're a, la a lawyer, or a cab driver, it just matters what kind of doctor, what kind of lawyer, cab driver. Or cab driver you are. How I deal with my reality is my choice. And uh, no one can take that from us. The famous existentialist and psychiatrist who I've been quoting from Viktor Frankl said that every time a Jew, and I'll repeat it again, gave up their rations to help someone else, every time they did a chesed under those extreme circumstances, it demonstrated that we still have free will. Listen to this great quote from Frankel. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's, at, which is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And that's the really, I really wanted to apply this to the situation because African-Americans, all minority groups, all Americans and all good people of goodwill should be extraordinarily frustrated by the death of George Floyd. But to say that we have no choice but to react in a violent manner is to abdicate all free will. Our family background, serious influences, and that circumstance, and, and, and again and again, and I can never pretend to imagine what it is like to be a black person in America. I can tell you what it's like to be a white person who's Jewish in America. I can't pretend to tell you what it would be like to be a Jewish person in Poland in the 1930s. So I, I, so it, I think it would, it would belittle the situation 
for, for me, growing up in an upper middle class family where I really was not subject to racism. I, I was subject to some anti-Semitism growing up. I got mugged a couple of times in Queens where I'm from. And because of the kippah that's on my head, I got called kike many times and I was in fights because of it. So I know what that feels like, but I don't think I'm, I'm judged so much because of the color of my skin or because of the kippah as much as, as perhaps a typical black person might be. So I, I can't pretend and I don't want to, um, to try to say I know how, how someone like this feels. I don't. I don't. But to say that we have no control as, as to how we react, that's not something that Judaism will ever be able to accept. The former chief rabbi of England, the great and late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, that in the past, people used to blame their mistakes and their flaws on the stars, on fate, on the gods. You know, today we have our parents, we have the environment, we have our genes, we have the educational system, politicians. I mean, I, I listen, we don't have the best politicians, perhaps, and, and I will acknowledge that. But I think that one of the reasons we spend so much time bashing, whoever you're bashing, Okay, because everyone, everyone's bashing somebody. And that is we don't want to look in a mirror. And in the past, in the ancient times, people blamed their mistakes on the stars and the, and the gods. And today, we don't do that anymore, but we blame our mistakes on politicians, on the educational system, and there's a lot that's broken in our society. You know, in modernity, the three most influential thinkers who espoused this philosophy were Spinoza, Marx, and Freud. And each attributed human behavior to what they believed was responsible for the actions and the decisions that we make in our life. Karl Marx, famously, right, the father of communism, of course a Jew, said that man is the product of social forces and that we are entirely shaped by the ruling class who own property, most significantly real estate, land. Spinoza, I spoke about before, believed in genetic predeterminism. And he said at the end of the day, you are the product of your biological drives. And there's nothing you can do to control them. And Freud said that we are the results. I studied a lot of Freud. I was a psych major. And I'll tell you, Freud freaked me out. Because Freud said that basically by the time your child is five or six, you're done. There's very little you can change. You, by the time you're five or six years old, you've been through the, the phallic phase and the oral phase and your Oedipus complex. The kid's finished. The anal for everything. And you basically can't change, you know what? MJE is all about 20s and 30s. And you can make changes in your life in your 20s and 30s. I just saw a post of one of my students who became a Baal Tshuva. Um, from Forest Hills, Queens. And he passed away. Friend David Ecker. And he started coming to my beginner service in Queens when he was in his late 50s. This is almost 30 years ago now. And he died just about two, three years ago. He went to Minion every single day at the Queens Drew Center. And uh, it's never too late. Rabbi Akiva was 40 years old. You're gonna say that by the time you're six years old, you can't really develop your personality? You know, I, I have this also when I, I had strabismus in my left eye. And I spent, um, a lot of my childhood in the ophthalmologist's office. And my mother, blessed memory, took me from doctor to doctor because they all said, you know what, it's too late. 
he's already six years old. The brain shuts down when it's five. When it comes to strabismus, I had lazy eye. I was legally blind in my left eye. And my mother would not take no for an answer. She took me from ophthalmologist to ophthalmologist until she found one doctor, Dr. Herman of blessed memory. I'll never forget him. He saved my vision. And you know what today people believe? The science at the time was you, you had till you were five. Today it's up to 14. And Rabbi Sachs famously wrote that when God told Abraham, Lech lecha go from your land, God told Abraham, go from your birthplace, go from the house of your father. Really what God was telling Abraham is stop using your father, your birthplace, your property, your land. These, these are all excuses. You need to get yourself away. Lech lecha. And it says, go into yourself. Because the answer to your problems is not to fix the government. It's not to fix the society. It's to fix yourself. Leave your father's home. Our parents are important influences, but they are not the sole determinants of the decisions in our lives. They create issues for us, no question. And one day, please God, if you haven't already, you will create issues for your children. But your children will get to, to deal with their own issues and you might need some therapy, you might need some help to, to process them and to deal with them and understand what force is coming from what influence. You know, my mother of blessed memory, she always spoke about this. She grew up in a very beautiful, but very typical of German Jewish mentality, is not to share too much information. They were very, very quiet, especially not with one's children. They were super private. So mother was sick six weeks before he died. My grandfather, after whom I'm named, had leukemia. And my mother found out a little more than a month before, and he had it for years. She had that secrecy within her. She grew up with that. She thought that was the norm. But she made a conscious decision not to raise her children that way. And she became an extraordinarily open lines of communication open and she was always talking things out and telling us to express our feelings you know I met with someone years ago someone has been coming around to MGE expressing an interest in growing in their Judaism in our last talk he had just come from one of his best friends bachelor parties his best friend he his best friend he told me and so when we started to talk about his getting more involved he started to do some more Shabbat at the time and he said, Rabbi, what do you want from me? None of my friends do this. My parents don't do this. I know I'm Jewish, but the Jewish world in which I grew up in, this is not what we do. We don't shut our technology down once a week. We don't abstain from eating certain foods. Well, on high holidays, we'll come to synagogue. And, you know, and maybe I won't eat like the ostensibly, you know, non-kosher things, but really you want me to check for labels? And I told him, I said, look, I'm being sympathetic. It must be hard for you. Right? But dude, you're 31. Not having a family and friends makes it more challenging to do these things. But if you see the value in it, and I know you see the value in this, then you can still choose to have Shabbos in your life. Socioeconomic factors, genetics, and your family upbringing are huge influences. But God told Abraham Lech Lecha. He was telling Abraham, and he was telling all of us, that we sometimes need to go beyond our parents, beyond our other influences in life, beyond the neighborhood in which we were raised, the friends that we keep. We don't have to lose them, and we should always stay close with our families. 
but we also don't need to be defined by them as well. Sometimes it's actually only when we break from the culture in which we live that we can do extraordinary things. Um, if anyone, other guy sweetheart, just tell me what time is it? I just want to see what we're up to here. Okay, we're going to finish up soon. I want to just share with you one last source. And that is source number 10. Avigal, you got to hear this. It's amazing. You can hear this one idea? It's beautiful. Sometimes it's only when we break from the culture in which we live that we can do extraordinary things. We know that when Basparo, the daughter of Pharaoh, takes Moshe from the water and calls him Moshe, two questions. Why couldn't she find a more elegant place to bathe? Why outside? This is the daughter and the princess of ancient Egypt. What is the daughter of Pharaoh doing bathing in the Nile? Atlantic Beach has these beautiful private beaches. So you'd figure the daughter of Pharaoh, she won't be in Long Beach. Long Beach has public beaches. Uh, Atlantic Beach has private beaches. What was the daughter of Pharaoh doing in a public bathhouse? At number two, Moshe had many names. Why did Moshe, his entire life, go by the name that the daughter of Pharaoh gave her? And why do we continue to call Moshe? Take a look at source number 10. And this is uh, the Talmud from Sota 12b. Pharaoh's daughter went down to wash herself by the river. Listen to this. The reason that the daughter of Pharaoh went into the Nile and she was in a public bathhouse was why? She went down self off from her father's idols. She went to immerse herself in the river as a way of actually converting to monotheism. And look at Rashi, the great biblical commentator Rashi says, L'shem Geras. She went into the, the river to get the schmutz of idol worship off her body. She wanted to convert to Judaism. Imagine the daughter of Pharaoh. Who was Pharaoh, guys? Pharaoh was worshipped as a deity. Despite who her father was, despite the polytheistic culture in which she lived, despite people would come and bow at him, Pharaoh's daughter was still able to follow her own convictions. And the image of being drawn out of water is very powerful. Water is the only element that takes the shape of its environment. Water has no shape of its own. Water, take a look at this, guys. You see this? Water takes on the form of shape of whatever environment it's placed. The daughter of Pyro takes Moshe out of water. She takes Moshe out of that which is totally formed by what it's put into. She taught us that we're not defined simply by the environment in which we're raised. She drew him out of the water, and that's why to this day we still call Moshe Min Hamayim Mishitihu. From the water did I take you? Because ultimately we can transform the environment in which we live. We live in a crazy world, a world that celebrates a certain open-mindedness and that encourages us to think for ourselves and to do our own thing. And yet it's a world where we somehow feel controlled and we blame so much on the influences of our parents, our friends, and our colleagues, and the culture around us. And so, in conclusion, maybe we can't pick what happens to us. The deck of cards we're dealt with. Maybe, as we said, it's all predetermined. But where it matters, we have the free will to choose. 
We can choose how to speak to other people. Even if others around us are cursing incessantly, we can choose that we're not gonna speak that way. We can choose how to dress in a more modest fashion, even if the style or what fits in flies in the face of what we all know is basic modesty. We can choose what to eat, to recite blessings before we eat if no one else is to. We can choose who to date, who to marry, how to conduct our business, how to engage in our most intimate relationships. It doesn't matter what everyone else is doing because the power to choose lives within our own hands. And that's what we are celebrating when we study Torah. And I want to just end the way I started this Torah we've been learning in the memory of the late, the late and great Rabbi Lamb who paved his own path and he made choices to live his life the way he saw fit. My blessing to each and every one of you is that we all make that choice. Choose how to live your own life. Don't be swept away. Don't allow what everyone is saying, what everyone is doing, to simply shape your worldview, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, the behaviors, the mitzvot that you observe, that you don't observe. Be your own man, so to speak. Be your own person. And remember that although some things are thrown at us, we have the choice as to how to deal with it. Things will repeat themselves. We will see the same situations again. We will see what our parents went through and our grandparents went through. But we really want to choose to deal with those situations in our lives. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.